0: Thank you, Taylor, again, for being here, for leading us this morning as we uh, celebrate uh, that the one who made man was made man. And that's really what we're here to celebrate uh, this Christmas season together. And it's, it's hard to believe Christmas is just three days from now. It kind of snuck up on us this year, I think, as late as Thanksgiving was. But uh, it's a, a great time to be here with you this final Sunday, this final Lord's Day. Uh, before uh, before Christmas. Uh, be sure to join us on Tuesday, as Seth mentioned earlier, for our uh, Christmas Eve candlelight services, 3.30 and 5 o'clock. Uh, they'll be here in this room. Uh, there's also a uh, child care for, for younger children, smaller children, so if you need to avail yourself of that. Uh, this morning, though, is the final week in our Advent series we've titled God Came Near. Uh, we've been uh, bringing messages from the book of Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews. Started out in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Then last week we had a message in Hebrews chapter 2. And our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 10. If you'll turn there with me, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through uh, 10. Uh, There was a a story I like about a couple that were uh, in a a busy shopping center just before Christmas. And the wife suddenly noticed that her husband was missing and they had a lot to do. So uh, she called him on on the cell phone. And the wife said, what are you doing? She said, you know that we have lots to do. And the husband said, "Uh, well, you remember that jewelry store we went to about 10 years ago and you fell in love with that diamond necklace? I couldn't afford it then, but I told you one day I would get it for you. A little tears started to flow down her cheeks and she got all choked up and said, yeah, I remember that jewelry store. And the husband said, well, I'm in the gun store right next to it. (laughs) Now, that's a man who failed miserably at Christmas, right? He failed to get it right. Uh, But we want to make sure we get Christmas right this year and every year. And I think there's no better place to get Christmas right than in Hebrews chapter 10. I want to bring a message this morning from this text I've titled, Christ on Christmas. Uh, Let me read beginning in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin... You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offering and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. Uh, Babe Pinelli was one of the famous uh, baseball umpires of all time. And one time he called out Babe Ruth on strikes. And uh, the crowd began to to boo sharply their disapproval of the call. And uh, the legendary Babe Ruth turned to the umpire with disdain. And he said, there's 40,000 people here who know that last pitch was a ball. And suspecting the umpire would erupt with anger, uh, the coaches braced themselves for Babe Ruth to get thrown out of the game. However, the cool-headed Babe Pinelli replied and said this, maybe so, Babe, but he says, mine is the only opinion that counts. (laughs) And and that's true of the Christmas story as well. When it comes to the Christmas story, there are a lot of different angles to view it from. There are a lot of different opinions and different perspectives. That's still true today get a lot of opinions and a lot of perspectives about what Christmas is really all about. But that's even true really in the original Christmas story. Uh, We have the perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, We have the perspective of the angels, uh, the perspective of Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father. Uh, We have the perspective of King Herod, um, of the Jewish leaders, of the shepherds, of the wise men, um, of Simeon and Anna, remember the, the, the senior saints, if you will, who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. There are many different angles from which we can consider Christmas. But as was the case with the baseball story, when it comes uh, to Christmas, there's really only one opinion that counts, and that's the opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Um, he's the reason for the season. The entire event really is centered on him. It's about who he is and what he came to do. And so his take on Christmas should be a paramount and primary importance to us. Um, Christmas is best viewed and understood through the eyes of Jesus. But we would all ask the question, I think, is that possible? I mean, there's no recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels at the time of his birth or the events surrounding it. Uh, we have words from many other people, but not Jesus. He's just a baby. In fact, uh, the first recorded words we have in the Gospels of Jesus are when he's 12 years old and he's there in the temple with the Jewish leaders. When Jesus is born into the world, he was the eternal word, yet he was a a baby boy without words. I mean, it's a staggering thing thing to think about Jesus Christ, the infinite God. He was the wordless word. So how can we get Jesus' opinion? How can we access his viewpoint on Christmas? Well, here in Hebrews 10, we have an inspired record of what Jesus was thinking when he came into the world. These verses tell us that just before Jesus entered the womb of Mary, he paused at the edge of eternity for a moment, and he talked with his father about his coming to earth. And so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, draws back the curtain, if you will, I mean, it parts the veil and lets us in on this conversation between God the Father and God the Son, this conference between them, this divine dialogue between Jesus and the Father. Now, this is a staggering scene here. There's nothing really like it anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews allows us to eavesdrop on a conversation between the obedient Son as Jesus steps out of eternity uh, into time. So it opens a fascinating window for us into the thinking and the mindset of Jesus right before He comes into the world. Look in chapter 10 and verse 5. We have the the, the very words of Jesus concerning His birth and coming into the world. Look at verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, the He there is Jesus. When He comes into the world, He says... So we have Jesus' own words concerning his coming into the world. Now, these are profound words, really. I mean, they're, they're staggering words for us. And the rest of verses 5 through 8 is a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And you may, might take time this week to go back and read Psalm 40. Since it's quoted here in this context, sometimes it's been called the Christmas Psalm. But the writer of Hebrews takes the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, uh, written by David a thousand years earlier, and places them on the lips of Jesus just before he enters the womb of Mary as an embryo. Uh, John Wesley said it well years ago. He said, Jesus was contracted to the span of a virgin's womb. Now That's a, an astounding thing to consider. The eternal, infinite God is contracted to the span of a virgin's womb. And just before that moment... Here in Hebrews 10, we have a record of what Jesus said. Now, one of the things this teaches us is that Jesus was preexistent. Obviously, if he's having a conversation with God the Father before he comes into the world, he had to exist um, eternally uh, before the world was created. So Jesus didn't begin at Bethlehem. I mean, he's in heaven with the Father before he's even born. So Jesus is the only person who ever existed before he was conceived. So Jesus was eternally preexistent and coexistent with the Father. Now, these verses give us what I call Christ on Christmas. You could call this the real night before Christmas. Or this is the first Christmas Eve, the Eve of Christ stepping into the world. And these verses reveal to us what Jesus was thinking about when he came into the world, what he was focused on. And I see three main things in these verses. Jesus was thinking about fulfilling prophecy. He was thinking about following the will of the Father. And he was thinking about uh, forgiving sin. So let's look at each of these together in this text. The first thing Jesus was focused on was fulfilling prophecy. Fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament that were written up to that time. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus is thinking about all that is written in the scroll of the book or what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And think about all that was written about Jesus. Uh, 1500 years before he comes, Moses writes the book of Genesis and gives that story that I like to call Christmas in the Garden of Eden, where the promise is made of the coming deliverer. We find out there that this coming deliverer is going to be a male because it says that he will be of the seed of the woman, that he will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will crush his heel. So we know from the beginning this deliverer is coming, he's going to be a male. Then it narrows it down in the Old Testament and tells us in Genesis 12, he's going to come uh, from the family of Abraham. And then later on in Genesis, he's going to come from Isaac, and then he's going to come from Jacob. And then of Jacob's 12 sons, in Genesis 49, we find out he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then in the tribe of Judah, Isaiah 11 says he'll come from the family of Jesse. And 2 Samuel 7 tells us of Jesse's sons, he'll come from the house of David. And Isaiah 7:14 tells us he'll be born of a virgin. Micah 5:2 says he'll be born in the city of Bethlehem. And Hosea 11:1 tells us he'll journey to Egypt before he comes back to the land. And on and on and on we could go. But across 1500 years by many different authors, God prophesied the coming of his son. And so the Bible is a book of history, but it's also a book of advanced history or what we call prophecy. I mean, the Old Testament, the gospel is a story foretold. In the New Testament, the gospel is a story told. And as Jesus was on the edge of heaven, as he came into the world, he was thinking that moment that all the scriptures had spoken of for 1,500 years was about to happen. All the anticipation, all the prophecies, all the foreshadows were now being realized. So all that God had prophesied about the advent of the Messiah was coming to fulfillment. Jesus came, as he would later say, to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the fulfillment of all these prophecies sets Jesus and sets the Bible apart. There's a lot of different numbers you'll run across, but the most reliable one I've found is in his life, Jesus fulfilled 109 prophecies from the Old Testament. Many of those were fulfilled at his birth. There were 33 prophecies fulfilled in the final 24 hours of his life. We talk, and rightly so, about the miracle of the virgin birth at Christmas, but just as great as the virgin birth is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the coming um, of Jesus. So the Bible is a book of fulfilled prophecy, and that's the main reason that we know that it's true. So Jesus, the living word of God, comes to fulfill uh, the written word of God. And Jesus is conscious of that. It's on his mind as he's coming to the earth. Uh, think about this. Jesus' entire life followed a carefully crafted script that had been laid out over a period of 1,500 years. And history ultimately finds its center in his birth. And so the first thing we discover about Christ on Christmas is a fulfillment. That's what was on his mind. He came to fulfill the word of God, fulfilling the prophecies and fulfilling uh, the promises of God. And there's a lot of things we learned from that. One is we learned that the Bible is true. The greatest proof of the truth of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. There are about a thousand prophecies in the Bible. 500 of them have been literally fulfilled with 100% accuracy. Now that's quite a track record. And it's sad today, so many young people are being drawn away from the faith that the Bible is not an inspired book. It's just written by people long ago. It's outdated. Look, the the words of Scripture are the very words of God Himself, and God proves it to us by predicting, in many cases, hundreds of years ahead of time, what will happen with precision and 100% accuracy. One great theologian says it like this that the Bible is the word of God to such an extent that what the Bible says God says. And prophecy proves uh, that that's true. It proves that Jesus is the God man. I mean no one could fulfill all these prophecies, 109 prophecies fulfilled in the life of one person. Proves that Jesus uh, is the promised Messiah, the God man. It proves that God is sovereign and he's in control. God can weave together all these streams of history and bring um, His will and the prophecies He's given uh, to pass in time. God is a God who keeps His covenant and keeps His promises. Uh, A promise made is a promise kept with God. And He rules and overrules human events to bring His purposes and promises to pass. You know, one thing I'll just mention to all of us at this end of this year as we head into the next year, you and I should feed on the promises of God often in our lives. Uh, read the Bible and, and find the promises of God and, and feed on those promises and claim them and lay hold of them. In fact, let me ask you this. What is there a promise of God in Scripture right now that you need for your life that you're laying hold of and claiming for your life and for your family? That's one of the things that gives us hope in life is to, to lay hold of these great promises we've been given in Scripture. We are people of the promise. And God is a promise-keeping God, and he fulfilled those promises and those prophecies in the coming of Jesus. And that's what Jesus was thinking about as he stood there on the edge of eternity to step into time. Now, the second thing on Jesus' mind was following the Father, doing the will of the one who was sending him. You'll notice that Jesus is speaking here in in Hebrews 10. Notice verse 5, it says, he says. Down in verse 7, then I said, again, this is Jesus speaking. In verse 8, after saying, and then down in verse 9, then he said. So this is what Jesus is saying to the Father. And we see here that Jesus was focused on following the will of the Father. In fact, you'll notice three times in these verses you have the word will. The end of verse 7, to do your will, O God. In verse 9, behold, I've come to do your will in the beginning of verse 10, by this will, that is the will of surrendering to the Father. Jesus came for a specific purpose and he said, I have come to do your will, O God. That was the life of Jesus, a life submitted to and controlled by uh, the Father. In fact, in uh, John 4.34, Jesus said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 5.30, Jesus said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6:38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Three times in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would say, not my will, but thy will be done. So Jesus is driven and defined by obedience to the father. And Jesus was delighted to do the father's will. And of course, we'll talk about this in a moment, but the ultimate will of the Father for Jesus was He willed Him to be our Savior. And Jesus obediently offered Himself to God as a sacrifice for sin, giving Himself totally to the Father's will. And of course, His obedience covered the disobedience of Adam. And He covered our disobedience as well as He surrendered to the Father's will. Now, like Jesus... the the delight and the desire of our lives should be to do the will of God as well. Now, I don't have to tell you this this morning, but it's not always easy to follow the Lord. Um, It's not always easy to be a Christian. It's not easy to be pure. It's not easy to be patient. It's not easy to be disciplined and to be honest and to be loving. But we find our encouragement here in the example of Jesus whose drive and whose delight was to do uh, the will of the Father. And I know when we talk about obedience, this isn't some sensational thing that just grabs our attention, but the focus of your life and my life is to please God, to please the Father, to live for Him a life of obedience. Uh, Peter Forsyth, a well-known Scottish theologian, he was right when he said this, the first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but to find its master. Now, we think in this world in which we live, in fact, it's, it's uh, said to us and repeated often, the goal of life is to be yourself and express yourself and find your freedom and, and do what you want to do in life. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible would tell us the duty of every soul, our first duty is to find our master, not our freedom, because actually it's in finding our master that we will find our freedom. You know, people will say, well, if you become a Christian, you know, you're going to lose your freedom. No, it's only when you find your master that you really find out what true freedom uh, really is. So the first duty of every one of us is to find our master and to allow our master to master us. That's the goal of life, to be mastered by the master. And as you find him and you're mastered by him, that's when you're going to find freedom and joy and peace in life. So that should be our desire, as it was with Jesus, to do your will, O God. One person put it like this, everything is ashes if we aren't living in constant obedience to God. And I sense that sometimes in my own life. You know when you're disobeying God in an area of your life, and it seems like your life is ashes when that's happening. It's ashes when we're not living our life in constant obedience to Him. Look, when Jesus came into the world, he was focused on fulfilling prophecy. He was focused on following the Father. And that brings us to the third thing that Jesus had on his mind when he came into this world. And We see it here again in his own words. As we listen again to this conversation between Jesus and his Father, we see that Jesus was thinking about forgiving sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on a human body in order that he might die for our salvation. When he came on the eve of his birth, that's what he was thinking about. That's what was on his mind. Notice in verse 5. Therefore, when he he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now this is a quote again from Psalm 40. If you go back to Psalm 40, we won't go back there, but you can, can read it on your own this week. You go back there, the Hebrew text actually says, my ears you have dug rather than a body you prepared for me. My, my ears you've dug or my ears you have pierced. Now, the the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates it, a body you have prepared for me. Now, you say, now, how do you get my ears you have dug, how do you get out of that, a body you have prepared for me? Well, it's probably a a Jewish idiom of kind of the part for the whole. In other words, part of fashioning a body is sculpting or fashioning the ears. It's focusing on the fact that we need to hear what God says. But since hollowing the ears is part of fashioning a body, the part there speaks for the whole. So it really does probably carry this idea of a body uh, you have prepared for me. So when Jesus comes, when he comes into the world, Jesus is going to come into a body, a human body, and that body will be used as a vehicle to follow the Father. And his ears will hear the will of God and will obey him. So God prepared a unique human body for Jesus. Um, Jesus' body was without a human father because I believe, as many theologians will state, that the sin nature comes from the man. Because it's from, from Adam, from the, the sin of man, uh, that, that, that the taint of sin is passed down from generation to generation. So by removing a, an earthly father, the taint of original sin is removed. So Jesus has a human mother, but he has no a human father. Mary is overshadowed uh, by the Holy Spirit as Jesus is conceived. And this is really the the mystery of Christmas, and some year we'll have to talk about this maybe in some detail, but in the person of Jesus, you have full deity and unfallen humanity. A lot of times people will say, you know, Jesus was was, was completely human. I, I, I like to say it more accurately. He was unfallen humanity. Full deity, unfallen humanity, joined together in one person. It's a big theological word for that. It's the hypostatic union. Full deity, unfallen humanity, joined together in one person. And and think about this. Something, when when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, something was added to the nature of God that had never been there before. A human nature was added to the second person of of the Godhead that had never been there before the one who sits in heaven today at the right hand of God is a man. He's a God-man, but he's a man in glory. I kind of alluded to this quote a couple of weeks ago, but I'll finish it here this morning. It's a quote by Adrian Rogers. He says, The babe of Bethlehem was the earthly child of a heavenly father, the heavenly child of an earthly mother. The child was older than his mother, but the same age as his father. He was fully God. He was as much God as though he was not a man at all, and as much man as though he were not God at all. He was not all God and no man. He was not all man and no God. He was not half God and half man. He was fully God and fully man. He was the God-man. That's a great way to say it. Jesus was the God-man. He had a body. He was a 100% sinless man and 100% holy God. But he had to become a man and have a body to die. But he had to be God to be able to pay the infinite price for sin. So Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior. Because only man should pay for man's sin, but only God could pay for man's sin. So in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, sin uh, could be finally atoned for. As God, Jesus reached up to heaven, to the Father with one hand, if you will, and as man, He reached down to mankind, to sinful humanity with the other hand, and brought us together um, at the cross. And he comes into this world, as he comes into the world, that's what he's thinking about, of being that, that mediator and that go-between between a holy God and sinful man. And so as Jesus comes to the cradle, he's already looking to the cross because we really can't explain the birth of Jesus apart from the death of Jesus. In fact, uh, notice the backdrop for our text this morning. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 1 and let me read these four verses because this is kind of uh, the running start to verse 5. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had conscience, consciousness, or some translate it, conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, the law was not bad. God had instituted the law. But the problem is the Mosaic law was insufficient, it was temporary. It was insufficient to ultimately take away sin. There was just simply on the Day of Atonement every year a covering of sin one year after another. And it's like God was extending the line of credit for another year as sins piled up and piled up, if you will, on God's uh, divine credit card. And then as a quote I've given many times before by Lewis Perry Chaffer who founded DTS, he said, all those Old Testament saints were saved on credit and all the bills came due at Calvary where Christ died once for all uh, for sin. There's an old uh, song that has a line in it that says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the conscience rest or wash away one stain. Hundreds of thousands of sacrifices, maybe millions offered uh, for those 1,500 years before the coming of Christ. None of them could ever ultimately deal with sin. Nancy Guthrie says it like this. She says, the blood of the sacrifices was like a bottle of medicine that a person with a chronic illness takes every day. She takes the medicine to get some relief from the symptoms, but the root cause, the root illness does not go away. It is not cured. That is what the sacrifices did. And so every time they looked at the medicine bottle, the blood of the animal sacrifice is served as a reminder of the medicine's ineffectiveness to take care of the root problem. It was a reminder that they were still sick with sin and the sacrifice was only a temporary fix. So as they looked at those sacrifices, it was just a a constant reminder of their insufficiency to deal with the ultimate root cause. Now, remember, as we've studied the book of Hebrews, we talked about this two weeks ago, that the audience of Hebrews was Jewish believers who were being tempted to go back to Judaism, to leave Christ and and go back to Judaism. And so the writer here throughout the book is setting forth the supremacy of Jesus, as if to say, why would you ever want to go back? And the book of Hebrews is a book of better things. In fact, the word better is found 13 times. And throughout this book it develops the argument that Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. He's the mediator of a better covenant. And ultimately Jesus is a better sacrifice. His sacrifice is better. The Old Testament sacrifices were just the shadow or the silhouette, but Jesus is the substance. In fact, if you want to kind of make a comparison, the Old Testament was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. The Old Testament was a continuous offering of sacrifices. In Jesus, it's completed. The priests were always standing. Jesus, after he died on the cross, sat down. The Old Testament, you had the reminder of sins. But finally, in Jesus, we have the remission of sins. So the author is telling the readers, you can't go back because history has already moved forward. There's an old story I like about uh, Frank Howard. He was the athletic director at Clemson uh, many years ago. And he was, asked about ad- he was asked about adding rowing as a sport there at Clemson. And his response is classic. He said, we ain't going to have no sport where you sit down and go backwards. Yeah. And I like that. <laughs> but that's what they were cont- contemplating, these, these believers here. Uh, they were contemplating going backwards. And the author is saying to them here, why would you go back? In fact, he's really saying you can't go back because history has already moved forward in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' one sacrifice supersedes all the sacrifices offered on Jewish altars. He says in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, that is the old covenant, in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A once for all payment for the price of sin. One sacrifice that puts an end to all the sacrifices. All that those millions of sacrifices in Judaism could never do, Jesus did completely in six hours as he hung on the cross and died for our sins. Back up in uh, chapter 9, verse 26, it says, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In Jesus, what was continual was completed forever. A once once offering for sin uh, for all time. Often here at Christmas, too, there's a little poem I like to quote. Many of you have heard me quote it before. If you get tired of it, that's okay. I don't get, t- I don't get tired of saying it. So. But it's uh, based on the little poem, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb, about Jesus. But Mary had a little lamb. His life was pure as snow. Everywhere the Father led, the lamb was sure to go. He followed him to Calvary one dark and dreadful day. And there the lamb that Mary had washed all my sins away. That's really the truth of Christmas in in a nutshell. That little lamb that Mary had grew up to be the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus came. And that's what was on his heart when he came into the world. And, of course, that raises a, a searching, sobering, a burning question really for each one of us. And that is, have you accepted his payment for your sins? That's the most important question and issue in all of life. And I ask you this morning, if not, why not trust him now and take that full pardon from sin that he offers to you? Forgiveness is not something, according to the Bible, that we work for. It's something we ask for. It's all we do. We ask for it. We go to God, we confess our sin, and we ask God, based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to wash away our sins and to give us eternal life. Look, the greatest thing that can happen to you this Christmas is not that you would be given something, but that something could be taken away from you. Your sin, your guilt, and your shame. That it could be taken away and removed from you by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, of course, when God saves us, He does give us some things too. He gives us eternal life, and He gives us the righteousness of Christ. But we have to first have something taken away from us. We have to have our sin and our guilt and our shame removed, and we find that uh, forgiveness in Jesus Christ and Him alone. In Him, we find everything we need. It's a story I heard not long ago about a, it's it's kind of from the late 60s, early 70s, some long-haired young people were in this park playing guitar, and this man walks by this one young man, and he's playing his guitar, and he's just playing one chord over and over again, just keeps playing it. guy's wonder what in the world's going on? So finally, after a long time, he looks at the young man, and he says, man, you're just standing there playing that one chord over and over again. He says, I've walked by several other groups of young people in the park, and they have their guitars, and they're going up and down the neck of the guitar playing all kinds of chords. You you just keep playing that one over and over. Why is that? And he looks at him, kind of shrugs his shoulder, and he goes, well, I guess they're still looking for it. I found it. (laughs) I like that because that's true of all of us who found Jesus. And the sad thing is in our culture today, people are are looking for it, but they're looking for what we found, that that one chord that that, that brings music to our lives, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who forgives our sins. Look, when Jesus came into the world, he was dominated by three thoughts. And these are, are three things that should be on our hearts and minds as well as God's people. He was thinking about fulfilling prophecy, God is a promise keeper, and you and I need this time of year to to feed on the promises of God that He's given to us. Jesus was thinking about following the Father, and you and I in our lives need to yield ourselves to the Lord and be mastered by the Master. And Jesus was thinking about forgiving sin, and you and I need to trust the Savior and and look to Him uh, constantly and consistently for forgiveness of our sins. We found what we're looking for in Jesus Christ. I was uh, looking at a book this week that I've had uh, called The Glory of Christ by Peter Lewis. And he's got a, a lot of different articles in there. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to you. It's a pretty thick book, but wonderfully written about different aspects of Jesus' life. And I was consulting the book again and looking at it in reference to, uh, to Christmas, to the incarnation of Jesus. But I was reminded of the, the introduction to the book, a story that he tells. And I want to close with this because this story really impacted me this, this week as I read it. It's a story about Peter Lewis, and he is in uh, Wales, uh, West Wales, at a church one Sunday morning, and uh, there's a, a pastor, there, are a Welsh pastor, about 30 people in the church. And this man is a very well-known preacher uh, in that area, and he's preaching about when he was a boy that he had a great hero, and he tells this story. So I'll just read the way Peter Lewis writes it. This is, again, the preacher that Peter Lewis was listening to said this. When I was a boy, about 12, I had a great hero. My hero was a local sportsman who achieved the rare distinction of gaining a cap in rugby for playing for his country, and who played cricket to a very high standard. I so admired this man, I papered the walls of my bedroom with press cuttings and photographs of him, and loved to talk and hear about his exploits on the field. He was my great hero. Probably all of us can relate to that, you know, some person that we idolized or a great hero in in our youth. But then he said this, then... When I was in my 14th year, I actually got to know my hero personally. He was a a great fisherman, and I used to go fishing with him. On these occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different viewpoint and got to know the man and not merely the image. At this point, the preacher paused, looked closely at the congregation, shook his head from side to side with an air of considerable authority, said in emphatic tones, and the nearer I got to him, the smaller he became." In a few brief sentences, he sketched the young boy's disillusionment as he discovered the true character of the man whose public image has so captivated him. No doubt everyone in the congregation that morning recognized the experience and sympathized with the preacher. But now, attentive as we were, we were hardly prepared for what followed. Suddenly, in a rising voice, with arms outstretched, voice breaking with emotion, he cried out. But God eventually led that downcast schoolboy to a new hero. And I've walked with my Jesus for 35 years now. In that time, I've often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I've got to know him better, and the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. I love that. That's our Jesus. He's the fulfiller, the follower, the forgiver. And the closer we get to him, the bigger he becomes. And I pray that this morning, as we've had the opportunity through God's Word and through singing together, to draw near to Him, that He's become bigger to us this morning uh, than ever before. And that we'll carry forward this image of our Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and our minds in these days ahead as we celebrate Christmas together as a church family and as our families together. Well, Let's pray together. Our Father, we lift our hearts and minds now in praise to You. We thank You for this glimpse into the portals of heaven as the eternal Son of God came into the world to become one of us, yet without sin, that He fulfilled prophecy, that He followed the Father, following Him all the way to the cross, and that He forgives the sins of all who will come humbly and simply trust in Him and simply ask for it. Oh, Father, may the heart of Jesus for Christmas be our heart as well. Fathers, we draw near to him. May he become bigger and bigger and bigger to us. Oh, Father, help each one of us to draw near to him this season. Father, be with us as we gather as families and as friends, as we gather as a church family on Tuesday. Father, we love the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. May his name be praised forever. Amen.